Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Genocide Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I am in dialogue with Dr. Kristen Semmons. She is Associate Professor in History at the University of Victoria in Canada. We will be discussing her newly published book, Under the Swastika in Nazi Germany published by Bloomsbury Academic Publishers, 2023. Kristen, it is an honor to have this conversation with you. Thanks so much for inviting me to have this conversation, Ari. I am really looking forward to it. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Can you comment on your personal relationship to the subject matter? Can you tell us about your research journey? Um, And can you introduce us to the person you are. I will do my very best. So um, let's see where to begin. Uh, I'll I'll give a few personal details. Uh, I grew up in Victoria, British Columbia, although I was born in Montreal, Quebec. Um, In terms of my educational journey, I completed my undergraduate degree at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, British Columbia. Uh, And then I returned to Victoria to complete my master's in history at the University of Victoria. Um, After I completed those two degrees, I decided it was time to take some time off from studying and I I traveled. I spent some time in working in a national park here in Canada. And then I moved to the United Kingdom to attend the University of Cambridge to complete my doctoral studies under the supervision of Richard Evans. And throughout that entire period, I had been motivated to study Nazi Germany in particular because of where I came from, uh, because of who my family was. And um, in large part, I'm speaking about the family on my maternal side. So my maternal grandfather was born in Lviv, Ukraine and was taken at the age of uh, 17 to be a forced laborer for the Nazis. He never saw his family again. And when he was working on a farm in Austria, that was then part of greater Germany, he met my grandmother and she was a a so-called ethnic German who had fled from her small village um, in the former Yugoslavia near the city of Belgrade And she had fled that village when the Red Army arrived in 1944. So my grandparents met on this farm in Austria and later moved to Germany. My mother was born in a displaced persons camp for Germans after the end of the war. And I grew up hearing their stories. And quite simply, they fascinated me enough to delve into the period more fully. And and so I've kind of stuck with that throughout my academic career. I... After completing my PhD, um, and when I was doing my PhD research, it was it was to complete a dissertation on tourism in Nazi Germany. I turned my dissertation into a book called Seeing Hitler's Germany, Tourism in the Third Reich. I spent some time uh, doing a postdoctoral fellow at the University of British Columbia, and then eventually I returned back to Victoria, where I still am today, um, and I'm uh, a tenured professor in the research stream at the University of Victoria. Lucky, very lucky to live in this part of the world. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? I think, Ari, I better come clean here uh, with listeners that this book was not originally my idea. It it kind of dropped into my lap. I actually had plans to begin another project when I got an, an interesting invitation by email one day from Lisa Pine. Lisa Pine is a noted British historian of the Third Reich. So Lisa and Carl Caldwell, who is an American historian of Germany, we're about to submit a proposal to Bloomsbury Press to edit a series of short introductions to different eras of the German past. And that series was going to be called German History and Focus. I had worked with Lisa before on an edited collection. So she invited me um, or, you know, sort of asked if I would consider writing the book on the Third Reich for the series. So I I took a few days deliberation because, again, this was not something that I had planned to do. And after a few days, I decided that that I would say yes. So 
then it was time for me to think about what kinds of messages I wanted to convey to readers with, with this book, because luckily enough, um, for the authors in this series, we were able to structure the book in the way that we that we saw would best meet the series aims. And that was to sort of offer easily digestible, we hope engaging um, short surveys of different eras in German history. So, um, you know, I immediately, I, I once I began work on the book, I knew exactly what I wanted to say. And, and one of the first things that I wanted to convey to readers is that it's not all about Hitler. So, you know, I tell my students uh, at the University of Victoria this all the time, that uh, despite continued fascination with the Fuhrer, um, it's not all about Hitler. So I knew that this book would, of course, devote a large part to Hitler and his henchmen, but I was aiming at a more integrated history that dealt with a broader range of German lives. So, you know, for one thing, I knew it was not going to be all about Hitler. The second sort of focus, area of focus for the book, the second area of focus was going to be on Germans at home. So although this was, you know, an expansionist imperialist regime, I was going to focus on Germans within the boundaries of an ever-growing Germany and not focus on their experiences as much in the countries that they occupied. Um, and third, uh, and I know I'm probably going on at length here, but, um, and I, again, I really appreciate this opportunity to expound on, on the kinds of messages I wanted to send. I wanted to go back in some ways to a kind of old fashioned approach to telling stories, which was to tell them in chronological order. Um, I really sort of proposed to Bloomsbury that I really wanted to structure this sort of um, not thematically, so with chapters, say, on women in the Third Reich or propaganda in the Third Reich or even racial policy, I wanted to tell things as they occurred um, because I really wanted to drive home the point to readers that the Third Reich incessantly changed over time, that there were new forms that emerged, that it was not static and unchanging in those 12 years. And so um, I thought that by telling things in chronological order, that would be one way of achieving that. What are the primary themes in your book? What story does your book tell? It's a great question. Um, so I, I hope this won't sound too glib, but a key theme of the book is actually, it's complicated. As I wrote early drafts for the book, I found myself constantly using phrases like, on the one hand, but on the other or I would make note of all the exceptions to these general rules that I was trying to sketch out. And I kept talking about, you know, all the inconsistencies. And so I remember I, I was taking a long walk on the beach. I live very close to the water here in Victoria on Vancouver Island. And I, I realized that actually these inconsistencies and complexities and these on the one hand, but on the others, that was one of the main points that I was trying to get across. There's no one story about the Third Reich. They are, there are multiple narratives about it, depending on different Germans' perspectives. And, you know, most fundamentally, most fundamentally, those differed depending on whether an individual or a group belonged to the insiders, those Germans who were welcomed inside Hitler's vision for his thousand-year Reich, or whether they were outsiders. So Germans who were cast out from it, dependent on whether, you know, depending on their beliefs, their behavior, or indeed their actual very being. Um, so I guess my aim was to kind of offer readers narratives that complement different groups of Germans' experiences under the swastika. And those, those narratives would sort of co coexist and intersect and, and actually shape one another. So uh, yeah, that was that was sort of my the, the the story that I wanted to tell the stories of different groups of Germans' experiences. Instead of conceptualizing the history of Nazi Germany as characterized by perpetrators, victims, as and bystanders, as it often traditionally is, your book rather emphasizes five categories of participants: Nazis, accomplices, supporters social and racial outsiders and resistors. 
why is this classification more helpful than traditional classifications? Well, for one thing, this broadens and complicates our understanding of Germans during the Third Reich. So that traditional triad, although it certainly has its uses, um, I think is just too simplistic. So with this five-fold classification, I was trying to get it a, a kind of a new framework for understanding Germans' responses to and their engagement with national socialism. So I think it offers a more, uh, you know, a more nuanced conceptualization of the complexities of life under Hitler. And at the same time, I think this schema actually better reflects Germans' lived experiences and their perceptions of themselves at the time. At the time, during the Third Reich, between 1933 and 1945, Nazi ideology cast Germans into, into five groups. There were the prime movers um, of, of regime policy and practice. There were the regime's collaborative partners. And there were the upholders of the regime. On the one hand, these were the insiders. And then on the other, there were its outcasts and its opponents. So I felt that this, you know, again, this classification sort of mirrored how Germans identified themselves at the time. But of course, this is still a simplistic classification. I mean, there were not just five groups of, of Germans in, in Nazi Germany. Um, the dividing line between these two groups was not, sorry, between these five groups, you know, that dividing line was not always clear. It wasn't, um, identities could overlap, they could coexist, they could change over time. We see how some early enthusiasts of the regime later became disenchanted. Or we see, you know, to use the terminology I use, we see that some accomplices from the beginning of Hitler's period in power later became resistors. And sometimes these realignments actually happened multiple times, even within the course of, of just a mere 12 years. And another caveat about this classification um, is that traditional identities that were based on class or region or religion, of course, did not disappear after 1933. So that means, of course, that there were significant differences, you know, um, between those that I might label as supporters or resistors. So, that, so they differed from one another even within those groups. So of course that means that in the book there are still a few on the one hands on the others. I couldn't get rid of them entirely. Um, and in the end, I just hope that this shows how complicated the reality of life under the swastika really was. You open each of the five chapters of the book with a brief chronology of key events in a particular time period. Can you tell us more about the groups of Germans that you write about and how they responded to some of the events that you document? For example, Hitler's actual inauguration day on January 30th, 1933, the day of Potsdam on March 21st, 1933, and Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass, which occurred on November 9th, 1938. Can you elaborate? Absolutely. You might you might have to remind me of uh, which the next one, which next date you know followed, but uh, but I'm sure I can can uh, approach all of those three. Um, in terms of Hitler's inauguration day, I think it's important to remind listeners that Hitler wasn't actually voted into power; uh, that he was appointed by the president. Uh, Paul von Hindenburg, even though, you know, Hitler was the, the head of the largest party in the German parliament, he still hadn't attained a majority vote in democratic elections. And so he was instead appointed. Um, and so he became chancellor on the 30th of January, 1933. Clearly, he had a wide following. He was popular amongst, you know, in ways that cut across some of the traditional divisions in German society. But again, he hadn't actually sort of won the hearts and minds over of, at this point in time, the majority of the German population. 
But in thinking about how these different five groups responded to be him becoming chancellor, um, I was, you know, I, I thought that was a good way of, of sort of approaching these events, thinking about how these responses differed. And so, of course, the Nazis, um, you know, sort of the by that phrase, I mean, the staunchest supporters of, of this Third Reich. Um, you know, by that I mean members of the Nazi party, or at least, you know, those in, in higher positions of power within the Nazi party, uh, SA men, the brown shirts, the SS members. Um, we could variously call members of the Hitler Youth Nazis as well. These, these individuals were ecstatic. They sensed that after their long so-called period of struggle, so the Nazis talked about their period of struggle, the Kampfzeit in the Weimar Republic, um, they sensed that this was now coming to an end and that victory would be theirs. So on the whole, you know, the 30th of January was greeted with, with ecstasy by, by those um, we, we might label Nazis. It was also greeted very warmly by many conservative politicians and other members of the traditional elites. So here I might include, um, you know, captains of German industry or top level civil servants. We could speak about judges or some of the great estate landowners. Um, there were, you know, some university professors among this group and, and senior military officers. This group I call accomplices in the book. And they were no fans of democracy, to put it mildly, though they had their reservations about Hitler's kind of lower class stat social status. And they certainly worried about some of the vulgar, um, the vulgarity of some of his uh, some of his followers. They were ready for, you know, for the most part to work with the NSDAP to regain their former dominant position in German society which many of them felt that, you know, the Weimar experiment had threatened. So, you know, these individuals, they cheered Hitler's assumption of, of the chancellorship, mostly as, as, and maybe we'll speak about this a little bit later when we speak about Potsdam, they mistakenly believed that they were actually the ones in charge. So they, they were enthusiastic, but because they had this misguided assumption that they would be calling the shots. The response to Hitler's being named chancellor was mixed among the group that I call supporters. So these were um, Germans who were to be welcomed inside the Third Reich that the Nazis planned to establish. I used, and I struggled to come up with the phrase that I wanted to use for this group. I choose the term supporters rather than the oft used term ordinary Germans because really because it inadvertently suggests that other Germans um you know Jewish Sinti and Roma black gay disabled um when we sort of use ordinary Germans to mean a group that doesn't include all of those other Germans that suggests that those others were somehow not ordinary or normal so I didn't like the phrase ordinary Germans for this group so instead I call them supporters because ultimately they did support the regime, however actively or, or tacitly. Um, in, in any case, I sort of got off track there, but um, the, the response was mixed. There were some who were cheering alongside the Nazis. They felt that this was going to be, um, you know, a remedy to the, the economic catastrophe that the Great Depression had been for Germany. There were some that imagined this was going to be yet another you know, another round of musical chairs in terms of the governments and cabinets that had fallen and, and risen during the Weimar Republic. So they didn't think it was going to be long lasting. And then there were some, of course, who, who saw quite clearly how dangerous Hitler and the Nazis would be and even how deadly their assault on democracy would be. Um, not surprisingly, those whom the Nazis cast as racial and so likely to have looked on this day with fear and trepidation. And finally, um, there were those, chiefly communists and socialists at this point, who took Hitler's so-called seizure of power as a call to resistance and who vowed to fight from this day forward this new state of affairs. I think the next day, the next date was was the day of Potsdam. Um, so if I can sort of uh, jump ahead to that, please. Yeah, um, the day of Potsdam took place on the twenty first of March, nineteen thirty three. 
And in order to in in order to understand its significance, we need to understand its immediate um, context and what events had preceded it. So, the Nazis had called for um, I should say you know that Hitler and his coalition government called for new elections on to be held on the fifth of March. And once those elections had taken place. And incidentally, the Nazis still didn't gain a majority, but they, with their coalition conservative partners, could could gain a majority co coalition. Um, they once they had sort of achieved that election, they unleashed a wave of violence against their political opponents. Uh, again, in large part, communists and socialists here, and communists and socialists and other members of leftist movements were arrested tortured, assaulted, and murdered um, by Nazi stormtroopers and indeed even by members of the police who were now acting under orders um, from, from Hitler. Uh, they, they had now had legalized powers to persecute. And this highly visible, bloody attack made many Germans nervous, even those, you know, even those who feared leftist parties, even those who supported the Nazis. Um, and among those who were made nervous by it were some of these conservative politicians. So we might speak of men like the vice chancellor, Franz von Papen, or uh, defense minister, the newly named defense minister, General Werner von Blomberg. And of course, even President Powell von Hindenburg was disquieted by the level of violence that was now being enacted by the Nazis. So Hitler knew he had to calm the domestic population, and he also had to to um, calm international concern about what was going on in Germany. So, uh, to to get on with the day of Potsdam, Hitler and Goebbels, uh, Joseph Goebbels, who was soon to be named Minister of Propaganda, they came up with what I call in the book a ritual of reassurance. So the the ceremony at Potsdam, which was to be held to kind of usher in this new newly named government, um, was really all about making Hindenburg, the president, the star of the show. So he was in the spotlight. He was wearing his military uniform while Hitler was wearing civilian dress. Imperial flags fluttered far more than swastika ones did. Um, and it was, you know, it was a ceremony that showed how the Nazis were going to operate they, they used a very seductive blend of kind of continuity and change, of restoration and radical revisions. And all of that came, came out in the day of Potsdam. And so there's lots of famous photos of the day of Potsdam. The one that most textbooks use is the one of Hitler bowing deferentially to, to Hindenburg. And it looks as if, you know, Hitler is acknowledging that Hindenburg will be the one to call the shots. Um, and indeed, this sent the message to his conservative partners that they were going to be the ones in charge. There's other photographs, though, that show these conservative politicians, you know, walking amongst Germans who are cheering them. And we have to kind of put ourselves in their shoes for a minute. They've never been cheered like this in their lives. So they actually sort of you can imagine that they are are looking at these these cheering crowd of onlookers and thinking, wow, we've somehow managed to sort of harness the Nazis' populist agenda with their own authoritarian goals. And so, you know, we have all these statements like those that Franz von Papen makes. He says of Hitler, we've hired him. So they really think that they've outsmarted him. But, you know, two days later, Hitler appears in brown shirt uniform under a huge swastika and announces the Enabling Act. And that essentially turns Germany into a dictatorship. So within two days after the day of Potsdam, we see a very different messaging coming from, from Hitler and the Nazis. And finally, I think you asked about um, Kristallnacht or yes. the night of broken glass. And so um, I suppose uh, oh, maybe what my book can add here um, is not to say anything necessarily new about how these five groups responded to that event, but more to emphasize an aspect of the this November pogrom that's often overlooked. And that was really quite new to me, even as I was researching it. 
Um, and that is the prevalence of home invasions and the destruction of private residences during the Night of Broken Glass. Work on that subject has really been pioneered by the historian uh, Wolf Gruner, who I know, Ari, that you have been lucky enough to interview on the New Books Network. Um, and so he, Gruner has really drawn our attention to this subject in, in new ways and has shown how widespread the phenomenon was. The name Crystal Knight is is used often to refer to the broken, um, you know, glass windows of synagogues and shop fronts, which were in their, you know, by their thousands were destroyed on the 9th of November, 1938. We don't actually have a reliable number for how many houses and apartments were invaded and vandalized and damaged. But as Gruner shows us, it was many times higher than the numbers of shops and synagogues that was destroyed. And I think it's really significant for listeners to understand that this wanton destruction of Jewish Germans sort of last safe place of refuge inflicted a devastating material and psychological toll. And so, um, you know, to drive this point home, I made sure to include uh, an image in under the swastika in Nazi Germany of a private home that had been destroyed in Vienna in the aftermath of a pogrom. And again, that was that was an aspect of the Night of Broken Glass that I hadn't been fully aware of before beginning to research this book. In light of your book's focus on individual and collective responses by Germans to the Third Reich, whose voices really stood out to you as you were researching it and writing it? So that's a really tricky question. Um, there were so, so many and and so many more that I had to omit. Um, the magic word count for this book series is, you know, maximum 60,000 words. To give you some idea of how, um, and maybe you're understanding this, Dave, because I give such lengthy responses to your questions, but to give you some idea of, of how over the word count I was, if the whole book had to be 60,000 words, the first draft of my first chapter was 90,000 words. So, and I was going to have four more chapters. So clearly I, I had a problem. Um, so that meant that there were so many voices ultimately that I had to, to omit from the final product. But what guided me was to try to find voices that we don't always hear from in these kinds of short introductory texts. And so I wanted among those voices um, to certainly include Jewish victims, but also non-Jewish victims of the Nazi regime. So for example, I searched for evidence about how disabled Germans responded to being sterilized. That was something that in my own teaching at the University of Victoria, I hadn't really focused on with students, but it was a subject that they often asked about. So I thought, okay, I, I, I need to know more about this. And, um, you know, the, the Nazis legalized sterilization with a law soon after they came into power. And I felt found a wealth of incredible material, um, archival material that was put together in a book by Alan Rushton, um, I'll, I'll give the title because listeners might be interested. Uh, it's called Talking Back Against the Scheme to Kill the Handicapped Citizens of Germany, 1933 to 1945. And so I, 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 I borrowed some of this incredible material, um, which again was, was fairly new to me, the voices of the disabled speaking about the impact that sterilization had had on them. So we hear from one from one inmate in a of a psychiatric institution about his sterilization. He said, and I quote, um, "It aggravates me to realize that I am sterile. I feel so violated. I spend many evenings crying." So that was a voice that that I hadn't been familiar with, uh, you know, until I I was compiling this this material for the book. Or or think about the words of of another woman. Um, she was threatened with sterilization, considered to be disabled by the regime, and she actually deliberately got pregnant. She, she deliberately conceived um, what was sometimes called a protest pregnancy because, and I quote her words, 
I want to show the state that I won't go along with this. So again, a, a voice that was fairly new to me. Um, I also reflect on the words that were more familiar to me of Hans-Jürgen Massakoy. Um, Hans-Jürgen was a Hamburg-born Black German. He had a white German mother and a Liberian father. And he desperately, I mean, he'd grown up in Germany. He spoke perfect German. He was as German as they come. Um, he desperately wanted to join the Hitler Youth. He even wore a swastika pin on his, on his sweater for a school photograph. And he, when he was told that he would not be able to join the Hitler Youth because of who he was, he plaintively told others, you know, my mother says I'm German just like anybody else. And that was, again, another voice that I that I really wanted to include in, in this book. What is meant by the term Gleichschaltung? Can you explain it? Absolutely. Um, so Gleichschaltung is a term that we can translate variously. So sometimes we use that we often use the term coordination, but we can also sometimes use terms like synchronization or Nazification, making things more Nazi. Um, I've also come across one historian who actually speaks about Gleichschaltung as the browning of German society. So uh, making, you know, bringing German society more in line with Nazi prejudices and phobias and hatreds. Um, Gleichschaltung was a process that the Nazis originally set in motion to bring the different state governments. So before Hitler became chancellor, there were 17 different states uh, within Germany. So Gleichschaltung was a process to bring the different state governments in line with the federal system. So that meant, you know, kicking out communists and socialists um, and putting in charge those, if they weren't members of the Nazi party, then at least those who would be more amenable to Nazi aims. But coordination or Gleichschaltung means something far more significant and wide ranging than just asserting and solidifying political power. It really was about infusing all of Germany's old sort of political, social and cultural institutions with Nazi values in order that they would now serve new Nazi aims. So maybe it's useful if I give um, an actual concrete example of, of what I mean here. So, um, and, and to do that, I'll draw on my research for my first book um, on tourism. So. Coordination meant in this context that all local tourism societies would have to be coordinated to align with Nazi goals. So on a concrete level, that meant that socialists and mostly socialists, there weren't very many communists on tourism society committees, um, and, and Jews uh, would have to be expelled from, from their membership of these tourism societies. And indeed, their new executive committees would have to have members of the Nazi party on them. So that's an example of coordination that had far reaching tentacles into German society, far beyond just simply coordinating state governments. Can you describe the processes of Aryanization and de-Jewification? What do you mean by these terms? Absolutely. So these terms refer to two sides of the same coin. When the Nazis first came to power, their most immediate goal was to remove Jews from the economic life of the country. So to, to de-Jewify the economy. The, the term in German is entjudung. So de-Jewify is a kind of awkward English translation. So they wanted to get rid of what they saw, what they perceived as some kind of especially malign influence that Jewish Germans somehow had on the German economy. And measures to achieve that goal, measures to achieve de-Jewification, included things like um, the short-lived April, April 1933 boycott, um, but also things of far greater consequence, like uh, a, a law that was passed that same month, April 1933, that, um, and it was a law called the Restoration of the Professional Civil Service. It had an Aryan paragraph that would 
dismiss all non-Aryans from positions in government, in law, in education. And those kinds of policies aimed at de-Jewification increased over the lifespan of the Third Reich, and they, they became a flood after the November pogrom in 1938. And they were all aimed at impoverishing Jewish Germans and, you know, strangling their ability to have any kind of um, acceptable life conditions under the swastika. Aryanization, so one, once Jews are, you know, pushed out of the German economy, their remaining businesses and practices and shops, um, etc., would be Aryanized. So what that term means is to put them into Aryan hands. And I wish listeners could see me making air quotes every time I use the term Aryans. It's it's not one I like to use, um, you know, without drawing attention to the fact that this is a Nazi term. But, um, you know, putting the economy into Aryan hands was was a Nazi goal. It was sort of more of an ad hoc process before the November pogrom although it was certainly engaged in by, you know, big business to some extent and smaller private business owners to, to, uh, to another, but it, ex it intensified as the Third Reich um, continued. And so to give you uh, an idea of what this looked like, by early 1939, um, approximately 75 to 80% of businesses that had once been owned by Jewish Germans in 1933, were now in so-called Aryan hands. What is meant by the term Volksgemeinschaft? So the term Volksgemeinschaft is one that I force my students, even though they are not German speakers, to learn. Because it's a term that historians of Nazi Germany often tend to reproduce in the original German. And I made that decision in, in my book to, to use the German term in the book, even though for many of these other terms, I've, I've used English translations to appeal to, um, you know, to make the book more accessible uh, to non-German speakers. Um, but Volksgemeinschaft, we, I, I use the German term so often because it embraces all the different kinds of various ways that we might translate it. So we could, you know, we can translate it as people's community or national community, um, sometimes it's translated as racial community or ethnic community. But Hitler's vision for what the Volksgemeinschaft would be actually sort of embraced all of the above. So essentially, what he imagined a Volksgemeinschaft would be was a, a, a racially pure, harmonious, and also therefore homogenous community that would unite all German insiders together in service and devotion to their people, their nation, and of course, um, to Hitler himself. Uh, so they would they would be united in in purpose and also um, by nature of their you know racial makeup. Can you comment on the insights that your research provides regarding the evolution of the concentration camp system under the Nazis? Absolutely. And, you know, I don't want to um, make any exaggerated claims for Under the Swastika in, in Nazi Germany. It is a book that is, um, up, you know, it's a survey of the most up-to-date research on many topics connected to Nazi Germany. And it's not necessarily new archival research that I undertook. So I can't claim to offer anything, you know, entirely new about the evolution of the concentration camp system. Um, here, I would recommend uh, the book by um, my friend and former uh, colleague at, at Cambridge, uh, Nick Voxman. He has a wonderful book called KL, A History of the Nazi Concentration Camps. So I love that if book. listeners are interested, uh, it's it's well, you know, it's a, it's a fantastic book on the evolution of the concentration camp system. But um, I will say that what I can offer readers in this book is, again, responses by different groups to the concentration camps that move beyond victims' experiences of them. Although, of course, I would say that those are, you know, of the primary importance. What I try to do in the book is think about and write about how different groups responded to the concentration camp system as it evolved. 
Um, so for example, I, I, I looked into, you know, how German judges reacted to the establishment of concentration camps. And, and certainly we see amongst this group who were absolutely accomplices of the Nazi regime, we do see some disquiet about these camps um, because they saw them as a kind of extra legal instrument of terror that went beyond what they saw as their purview to, you know, um, to oversee law and order in, in Germany. And so, of course, they they actually expressed some dismay sometimes when, you know, let's say they had a defendant in front of them in their courtroom and a judge might pass a sentence and suddenly a Gestapo officer appeared and hauled that, you know, defendant away, no matter what the judicial sentence had been, into a concentration camp. So sometimes we actually have complaint letters about this process, but I don't want to overemphasize this disquiet. There was no resistance. There was actually no real resistance among the judges to the concentration camps. And in fact, um, you know, with full knowledge of the concentration camp system, if not necessarily the details of, of what went on inside them, judges you know, cooperated with the Gestapo. They traded files, especially in treason cases. And so the judges were, again, I mean, I use this word, um, you know, they were accomplices in the way the concentration camp system worked in, in what, you know, in some ways. Uh, I would also suggest that, again, although the book might not necessarily shed new light on how the concentration camp system evolved, what it can emphasize is how the group that I call supporters responded to the concentration camps. So by that, I mean those who were not interned within the camps. So how did they think about this, this system? Um, and I, I've drawn on recent research by a book that is just about to come out. I was very lucky to um, have access to, to uh, his earlier dissertation. And that's work by Paul Moore, who's based at the University of Leicester. So he works, um, his book about to come out uh, is, you know, deals with the concentration camps and the German public's attitude towards them. And his assessment, um, with, which I, with which I agree, is that by sort of 1936, 1937, the camps had become, in many ways, so normalized among German insiders that they had actually faded as a point of concern. Um, you know, he draws upon a lot of evidence that shows they just didn't become as much of a talking point after that period in time among those who were less likely to ever be hauled inside their, their gates. Um, so again, I don't want to dismiss, I, I certainly don't want to dismiss the fact that there was a fear of the concentration camps and they could be used effectively as a deterrent. And of course, I never want to take away the fact that those within those camps were experiencing, you know, unimagined brutality. But in terms of those Germans who were, as I say, less likely to be found within their, their barbed wire, um, it had become a normalized sort of system of penal incarceration. And Germans imagined that the people who were there deserved to be there. And so perhaps that's something that that my book can bring to readers' attention. What new insights does your research glean regarding the 1935 Nuremberg Laws? What I really enjoyed about the process of writing this book is thinking about how Germans responded to these specific events from the various perspectives that I had laid out. And so it forced me to consider perspectives that I hadn't really spent as much time thinking about. But again, drawing on how wonderfully my students' questions intersected with this process, they were questions that had come up as I had taught this subject matter. So, you know, students had said, well, you know, how, how did Germans feel about the, the Nuremberg Laws? How did Nazis feel about the Nuremberg Laws? How did Jewish Germans feel about the Nuremberg Laws? And so the book enabled me to actually sort of sketch out how those different um, groups responded. And so when we think about how Jewish Germans responded to, to the Nuremberg Laws, 
I think most of us would assume that, you know, uh, a climate of despair followed. And I think that would certainly be true, that the majority of Jewish Germans despaired by this new status quo. And, and just to remind listeners, um, the Nuremberg Laws were a set of laws issued in September 1935 that forbade marriage or sexual relations between so-called Aryans and non-Aryans. But they also, another of the Nuremberg Laws, also transformed the latter, non-Aryans, into subjects of the Nazi state and not citizens of it. So, so that's what the, the Nuremberg laws were. But so naturally that, that predominant sentiment is despair because, uh, and also fear, because breaking the Nuremberg laws could result in charges of so-called racial treason, which to, to come back to the camps, um, could actually result in a, in a sentence to, to a concentration camp. So breaking down those relations between Jewish Germans and other Germans had a massive impact on, on Jewish Germans' lives. Um, the historian Marion Kaplan, who writes a wonderful book um, called Dignity and Despair, um, emphasizes the process of social death, as she terms it, whereby, you know, Jewish Germans saw their social connections extinguished long before their their actual lives were um and i you know i came across the way in which jewish germans responded to these laws so for example one man um whom i quote he's a holocaust survivor he recalled in his memoirs how his friends after the nuremberg laws were imposed how they and he says um didn't you know they hardly left their houses because they wouldn't then have to keep experiencing how people avoided them. And he says in, in his memoirs, they were lonely, lonely. And that word lonely crops up so often when you read about how Germans responded to the social death that the Nuremberg laws inflicted. But one thing that did, you know, if not surprise me, um, if, one thing that kind of reminded me that there's more to this than just a climate of despair, is that there were some Jewish Germans who actually were hopeful about the Nuremberg Laws. And I know this might be surprising to, to listeners, but or maybe unexpected to some listeners, because they hoped that what the laws would do would actually create a kind of new, tolerable relationship between Jews and non-Jews that would be better than what had just preceded them. And what had just preceded the um, imposition of the Nuremberg Laws was a period of uncontrolled, sporadic violence and humiliations and, you know, anti-Semitic propaganda. And so some Jewish Germans thought that at least now that the Nuremberg Laws had been imposed, that period of uncontrolled and, you know, um, spontaneous violence would somehow be diminished. So there's hope mixed in with despair. Uh, so again, that was something surprising to me that we could see those those two things mixed about what we would normally assume would be sort of, um, you know, just straight out despair. What misconceptions about the Nazi dictatorship in Germany does your book challenge? Why do these misconceptions persist? That is a wonderful question. And I'm because, you know, as an academic, I'm I work in two circles. So I have my academic life and then I have my you know, civilian life. Uh, so sometimes, you know, things that would not be surprising to academics. They're definitely surprising to a more general um, audience or, or a more, you know, a wider public. But a common misperception that persists about Nazi Germany, at least again, among um, a more general public, not necessarily academic, definitely not academic experts, is that explaining the Third Reich is somehow straightforward. So there's sort of two ways in which people who might not have had the privilege of studying this topic in depth, as I have had, two ways that, it, that they often sort of explain things. And in, in large part, this is also buttressed by popular culture, movie and video games that sort of tell a story in black and white. So there's these two narratives are, are either Germans behaved the way they did 
because they were terrorized into it by Hitler and his his henchmen. So, you know, fear. Or they did what they did because they were all virulently racist believers in every aspect of Nazi ideology. So not fear, but conviction. And clearly I am definitely not the first to, to suggest, but this misconception, which I think persists because it's just sort of an easier explanation, um, it, you know, it, it's not either or, it is both and. So rather than, um, you know, thinking about one or the other, we have to think about ways in which coercion and consent coexisted in Nazi Germany. You can't simply suggest that it was, you know, all fear or all conviction. One of the most fundamental questions that anyone who works on Nazi Germany will eventually have to ask themselves is, you know, how did the Third Reich remain in power? Not just how did Hitler come to power, but how did it remain in power? And historians have struggled ever thereafter to, to decide, was it through force? Was it through compunction? Or was it through cooperation and complicity? And again, I, I don't want to claim that my, you know, um, fence sitting on uh, to some degree is anything new, but I really do argue that it is, um, the, the regime needed both. For terror to work, there had to be some consent. There couldn't be large-scale resistance to the imposition of Nazi terror. And on the other hand, terror was an effective way for the Nazis to manufacture consent. So they are, you know, again, two sides of, of, of a coin. And, um, you know, if after reading my book, if anyone out there does, if people say, wow, um, I never actually knew how complex the realities of life in Hitler's Germany were, then then I will be really pleased. Can you tell us more about groups like the Navajos Youth Gang, the Neroth Hikers, and the German Boys Club of November 1st? Absolutely. So these were groups of young people. Um, in large part male, but but some of these groups had had female uh, members as well, that refused to coordinate with the Hitler youth. So the Navajos, who actually, you know, consciously styled themselves on indigenous North Americans, or at least their imaginings of them, um, they were a youth gang based in Cologne. Uh, the Neroth Hikers, the German Boys Club of November 1st, these were all groups of young people who refused to adopt the Hitler Youth uniform, to be coordinated and practice the militaristic activities that the Hitler Youth engaged in. And although they sound somewhat innocuous, from the regime's perspective, these independent illegal after 1939, when membership in the Hitler Youth became uh, mandatory, these independent nonconformist groups really frightened and outraged Nazis, especially men like the leader of the SS, Heinrich Himmler, because they threatened to, they threatened the desired homogeneity of the people's community. They were outliers. They, they weren't doing what young people were meant to be doing. I, I love the quote from one former member of one of these youth gangs. Um, he said, the main problem was not that we were against the Nazis, but that the Nazis were against us. And I think that brilliantly sort of, um, and succinctly uh, sort of calls attention to the fact that these were not explicitly resistant groups, resistance groups in the ways that they were sort of actively trying to take down the Nazi regime. Most of them simply didn't want to don an, a Hitler Youth uniform and go marching and, you know, engage in paramilitary activities. Some of them certainly were engaged in more, ex, you know, explicitly resistant and oppositional acts, but, um, but most of them were not. And yet, nonetheless, the longer the regime was in power, the more ruthlessly it pursued these young people, even sending, um, you know, teenagers to brutal re-education camps for belonging to one of these groups. 
And then during the war, um, it, the Nazi regime even executed boys as young as 16 for their membership in the in these clubs. Can you describe the roles played by block wardens? Absolutely. Um, I sometimes, maybe it's a bit of a stretched metaphor, but, or, or an, an equation. I often ask my students if they remember um, or have ever seen those signs that at least are, are still to be seen in my neighborhood that tell of a block parent. And a block parent would be someone in our context today to whom children might go if they were in trouble. Sort of a neighborhood watch type thing. Well, the Nazis also had their much darker version of a block parent or a neighborhood watch, and that was the block warden. So the block wardens were the, um, they were the lowest ranking members of the Nazi party in terms of being those, uh, in, in terms of those who had an official task within the party, an official position. And they were, you know, given the, the duty, according to Hitler, these are his words, that they would lead the folk, that they would lead the German people. And this would involve not only in schooling Germans in sort of key ideological tenets of Nazism, but it would also mean that they would watch over them. So in a, you know, in essence, and in practice, it meant that they would become neighborhood spies. So they would collect information about those Germans who lived within their one block. So that was about, you know, 40 to 60 households of Germans. And so they would, they would spy and observe and report on anything that they saw going amiss. So it might be, you know, um, objectionable marriages or people who were having babies who perhaps the block warden didn't think should be having babies. Um, they might report on any kind of malicious gossip uh, about the regime to use the, the Nazis term malicious gossip was illegal. So they were deeply unpopular with other Germans, even those who actually supported the Nazi regime, because they were always sort of loitering about and, and spying on people. But I should say that the block wardens did have some power vis-a-vis -vis other Germans because they were so prevalent, because they were so, you know, they appeared so often, um, it was actually often more difficult to keep secrets from the block wardens than it was from the Gestapo it was posted in every block. So the block wardens were a sort of, um, you know, they were a significant part of the apparatus of terror. What was the rest stop Marzahn? The rest stop Marzahn, uh, the rest place, you know, uh, Marzahn, is a perfect example of Nazi euphemism. This was nowhere like a rest stop as we might conceive it sort of on a journey on the highway where we might pull over for some rejuvenation and relaxation. Instead, Rest Stop Marzahn was a so-called gypsy camp. So the Nazis used the term gypsies or zigeuner. It was a gypsy camp established in a suburb of Berlin where approximately 600 Sinti and Roma Germans were sent after being rounded up in advance of the Berlin Summer Olympics in 1936. So the Nazi regime claimed that it wanted to clean up the streets before international visitors arrived in Berlin in 1936. And Sinti and Roma Germans were accused of being lazy, of being work shy, of being so-called habitual criminals. Again, these are all, these are Nazi terms and I, I wish people could see that I'm making air quotes around them. Um, and their itinerant lifestyle and their different customs had long made them a target of prejudice. The Nazis were certainly not the first to have anti-Gypsy prejudices. Marzahn was built near a cemetery and near a garbage dump. It was enclosed in barbed wire and conditions were atrocious. Sanitation was almost non-existent and uh, Sinti and Roma men were now turned into forced laborers for the Reich. Scientists, and here I'm doing more air quotes, now had a captive population to study 
and they submitted their findings as well as photographs of Sinti and Roman, Roma Germans in Marzahn to the Racial Hygiene and Hereditary Research Office. So they were forced um, to undergo um, physically humiliating and sometimes painful bodily um, inv investigations and also were photographed uh, so that you know the Nazis could learn more about, about this people. Um, some Sinti and Roma Germans were actually forced to remain at Marzahn until they were deported to Auschwitz during the war. Can you tell us about Operation Workshy? What were its causes and consequences? Absolutely. And that is actually a, a very good follow-up question. Thank you, Ari, um, to connect to Restop Marzahn, because the victims of this operation often included Sinti and Roma Germans. So between April and June 1938, in kind of two major waves, Nazi authorities rounded up approximately 10,000 Germans, mostly men, but um, certainly some women were included as well. And these were individuals whom they accused of being work shy. In other words, of being jobless at a time when Germany, which had now fully recovered from the depression, had actually reached full employment or at least full employment among German insiders unemployment was rampant amongst outsiders. So these men who were arrested during Operation Workshire Reich, they were mostly sent to Sachsenhausen concentration camp, which is north of Berlin. And their numbers included Jewish Germans, Sinti and Roma Germans, as well as those whom the regime labeled asocial. That's again, another Nazi term that deserves quotation marks. And among that group were counted um, prostitutes, petty criminals, alcoholics, and all those whom the Nazis accused of somehow failing to live up to the community norms that, that the regime wanted to establish. In essence, these were people who had already long been on police radars. So they were Germans who were experiencing homelessness and addiction. There were those who, due to the Great Depression, had long been battling prolonged joblessness. And now they were rounded up, arrested, and sent to camps. We know very little about this group. They, after the war, those who survived tended not to speak about their experiences very much because of enduring shame about what had led them to their incarceration. There is one exception though. So I, 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 I like that I'm giving all these different shout outs to some of my favorite historians. So there is an, an exception um, that we read about, for example, in Sarah Helm's excellent book about Ravensbrück concentration camp for women. Um, so one of those women who is arrested during, you know, these kinds of raids on the supposedly work shy and asocial is Elsa Krug. She was a, a sometime prostitute who was arrested, interned in Ravensbrück concentration camp um, and eventually murdered in 1942. But we know a little bit more about her because her mother actually corresponded with the authorities to, to find out more about what had happened to her daughter. But otherwise, this is a group of Nazi victims that we know, that we know sort of something about what happened to them, but that we don't have many voices from themselves. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book? What have you been focused on? I always love that question. So at the end of one project, the immediate follow-up is, what are you going to do next? And uh, I, I will admit, I had a lovely summer not really working on anything to do with Nazi Germany. Um, after you know devoting so much time to this book, um, having worked on it through the COVID pandemic, I, I gave myself some time this summer to um, really kind of decompress and recover from immersing myself in some of this, some of these horrific stories. But at one point, I hope to investigate more fully the stories of my maternal grandparents, um, about whom I spoke at the beginning of, of our conversation, Ari. So about my, my Oma, who was an ethnic German, who fled the Red Army, 
about my opa, who was a forced laborer, a Ukrainian forced laborer under the Nazis, um, about my own mother, who and her experience of uh, not that she remembers, but but being born in in a in a camp uh, of leaving Germany when she was five years old and immigrating to Canada. So I would love to set their stories in the context of the mass migrations that became such a hallmark of the 20th century in Europe. Um, and so I, you know, that that's kind of a project that, that I would love to engage in one day. My family, um, my, my two teenagers and, and my husband would love me to write a historical novel about their stories. They would love me to try my hand at uh, not an, another academic book, which I then forced them to read, but an actual sort of historical novel that would take my grandparents as kind of leading characters. I'm not so sure about that idea, but maybe one day, you never know. I would be thrilled if you could bring that to fruition. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I am your host today on the New Books in Genocide Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I've been in dialogue with Dr. Kristen Simmons. She is an associate professor in history at the University of Victoria in Canada. Today, we've been in dialogue regarding her newly published book, Under the Swastika in Nazi Germany, published by Bloomsbury Academic Publishers, 2022. Thank you. Thank you, Ari. It was a pleasure to be here. I am signing off our interview today as Ari Barbalat, your host on the New Books in Genocide Studies podcast. Today, I've been in dialogue with Dr. Kristen Simmons. She is Associate Professor in History at the University of Victoria in Canada. Today, we've been discussing her newly published book, Under the Swastika in Nazi Germany, published by Bloomsbury Academic Publishers, 2023. Thank you. Thanks so much, Ari. A pleasure.